You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's an odd quirk of fate that the entire reason that the Iran-Contra story was revealed and Reagan's presidency affected by it is not because of any events in the United States, but because of a conflict within the Iranian government and a battle for power in that country. But here's what we know. As we discussed on the full episode, White House on Fire, of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, part of the dozen Ronald Reagan series, it's actually number eight. We discussed in that episode on November 4th, 1986, the New York Times published a story that exposed one of the more bizarre U.S. foreign policy initiatives of modern times, that The Reagan administration, who had entered office on this very conservative, hardline policy, was trading arms with Iran, using Israel as a conduit. Their account was based largely on a newspaper account from Lebanon. The day before, November 3rd, Lebanese magazine had reported that Ronald Reagan had been enmeshed in secret negotiations with Iran over the fate of American hostages being held by forces in Lebanon. The administration had reportedly sent an envoy, former National Security Advisor Robert Bud McFarlane, to Tehran in order to talk. The revelations came as a particular shock to American readers because the State Department had identified Iran as a sponsor of international terrorism. Well, what happened? The key player behind the revelation of the Iran-Contra story that started so many events in the United States is Mehdi Havshemi. Now, not to be confused with two other people that have the same name. One is an actor, an Iranian actor, and the other is the son of the former president, Rafaz Jani, who's also currently involved in some trouble uh, in Iran. The, the, we're talking about another figure, Mehdi Havshemi, who was the leaker of the story. Now, the key thing to remember is he wasn't just somebody kind of on the outskirts here. He was a very powerful and popular figure in revolutionary Iran in the 1980s. He was a Shia cleric who had become a senior official in the Islamic Revolutionary Guards. This was the army that kind of enforced the will of the government and the clerics after the revolution, after the Shah was deposed in Iran. He was related by marriage to the family of Ayatollah Ali Montazeri. Montazeri is the person who is designated, officially designated, as the next Ayatollah, the one that's going to succeed Ayatollah Khomeini when he was to die. The thing about Mehdi Hashemini is that he's his son-in-law and also a revered patron of him. So, Hashemi leads an office that's charged with promoting the Islamic Revolution in Iran to other countries. And he approached his mission with a fanatical zeal. And was not so pleased with anyone in the Iranian revolutionary government that wasn't as committed to spreading the revolution that had started in that country to other nations. One of his key political rivals is going to be Akbar Hashemi, very common name as you can see, Akbar Hashemi Rasanjani, Speaker of the Parliament, kind of a pragmatist in the government, and he is going to be one of the central figures in the deals with the United States. 
Hashemi gets his start in the late 1970s when he kills a conservative cleric who had insulted Khomeini. This is during the Shah's regime. But there is a groundswell of support of, of, of Islamic radicalism and support for the Ayatollah Khomeini. And now Hashemi is supported by opponents of the Shah. And he's released by prison because the government sees him as such a hot potato. They, they release him. And after the revolution in 1979, the Shah is deposed. Hashemi is a hero. And his connection to the Ayatollah Montezari, who's going to be the heir if anything happens to Khomeini, is just puts him in this great spot. So we're not talking about some radical in the government. We're talking about a, a, a person who's going to have great importance and a hero in the country. But Hashim is a, is a extremist. He wants to spread the revolution to other countries, and he wants no dealing with Western power. So he's opposing the Iranian government, who at this time, during the early to mid-1980s, are obtaining weapons that they can from Israel and perhaps from the United States in order to give them an advantage in the Iran-Iraq war. He doesn't want any part of it. He doesn't want any part of what he's hearing about providing assistance to the Reagan administration and getting their hostages back. And so he uses a weapon available to him. He leaks news of the dealings to the Lebanese newspaper Asharia. And once that story is released, and then the New York Times picks it up, we have the beginnings of Iran-Contra. Yet, for somebody who has such an important role, his story isn't well known in the United States. At first, Hashimi has the elites in government that he feels have been faithful enough to the revolution where he wants them, because he has exposed publicly, or attempted to expose publicly, that they met with the United States. In Iran, this is politically embarrassing for the government, could make the government topple. And the rest of the story is that Hashimi kidnaps a Syrian official who's in Tehran. This gives the Iranian government cover to take action against him. Now, the Iranian government arrests him and then announces that he, along with 40 associates, including his brother, will be arrested for treason. The minister of intelligence, the former judge of the military tribunals, is his special prosecutor. But Hashimi has powerful patrons, including the guy that's going to succeed Khomeini. And for months, they're going to try to get him out. And even though he's a powerful figure, jail in Iran, of course, is no picnic. The application of 75 lashes for lying, God knows what else. He's being confronted with all the other 40 who have been arrested, who have damaging confessions about all the evil that he was doing. Even his brother turns against him. And after eight months and three different taped interviews, Hashimi produces a taped confession aired on national television and headlined in newspapers as, I am manifest proof of deviation. Deviation is my ultimate sin. This is why I now stand before you. I began my career with minor infractions, gradually strayed from the correct path, continued it with larger mistakes than to major sins, and ultimately to the worst sin possible, that of heresy, apostasy, and treason against the imam, the community, Islam, and the Islamic revolution. I have to ask myself, what was the root cause of my downfall? 
I now realize that despicable sinners like myself had no business inside the air designate's office. I thank God that I have been removed from this office. So you have this kind of like Soviet-style, obviously encouraged confession, uh, whether it was an attempt to get out of there, whether he was being tortured, whether he's told, you know, if you confess, you'll, you'll get out sooner. We don't know. We do know that Hashimi had some powerful friends because the air designate, the Ayatollah Montezari, is working unavailingly behind the scenes to save him. But the execution is carried out before the sentence even gets public, specifically to prevent Ayatollah Montezari from putting more public muscle into the appeal to release Hashimi. Hashimi's father-in-law, Montezari, is not going to be the heir designate after this. He's officially demoted from the successor position in favor of the Ayatollah Khomeini. All right, so Khomeini at the time of the revolution, Khomeini after. He becomes a critic of the government, and he's even jailed um, at different times during the 1990s and 2000s. Uh, dies in 2009, and actually becomes a member of the Iranian reform movement. So I think it's interesting to hear the story of Hashimi and uh, the role that he played, and because it's in Iran and it's not a country that we have routine contact with or see their news media or hear about events there commonly, unless it's something that you're specifically following or you're kind of an Iranian expert, um, you do see in this story, just first of all, that it's interesting that the whole Iran-Contra story uh, started, because the people that the Reagan administration were dealing with were having political problems from other people in the Iranian government who didn't want them dealing with the U.S. And it is exactly the reverse situation of what Reagan had claimed in the press conference that we played bits of. In that press conference, he specifically noted that he wasn't dealing with the Iranian government. He was dealing with factions within the Iranian government trying to increase their prestige by allowing them to say, hey, we're getting arms from the United States. See how powerful we are. You should let us run the government. Um, an implausible uh, story in, in a country like Iran. In fact, the situation was exactly the reverse. The Reagan administration, Bud McFarlane, had been meeting with the Iranian government, and it was a faction within the country that didn't want that to happen. Thus the leak. Iran, since the revolution, has always had political actors in its midst, representing a fairly broad range of views, even if all of it was kind of Islamic populism and everyone is always supporting one cleric or another. And sometimes even the country's central authorities have found it hard to constrain the most radical of those elements. So Hashimu was very powerful because he had been dealing with something that was very popular, spreading the Iranian revolution all across the world. So I think in addition to being interested for Iran country, it just gives you a little insight into the country that even a totalitarian, uh, religious-dominated country like that does not always have one solid viewpoint. Um, there could be many viewpoints, and to some extent, he who lives by the populist sword dies by the populist sword, right? If you're going to, if your whole politics of your country is based on stirring up a popular revolution, 
and uh, you, you, you're always subject to someone else being a little better at it. In 1987, the threat from Hashimi was quelled, you know, but it certainly could have gone the other way. And we haven't had a friendly relationship with Iran, but the governments, some of the governments, have been more moderate. And it probably would have been even worse had Hashimi not been caught. In their last episode on a DC representation, we got to read some from Carps, Washington. Uh, Frank G. Carpenter was a correspondent for many newspapers in the 1880s and wrote about what Washington, DC was like. And I, and he, including a lot of characters that still live there, which to me sort of mirrored the character of the city of Washington, which also had this kind of haphazardness, randomness, putting it together as we go along. That really was the history of our nation's capital. Um, didn't get to go to all the stories, but uh, he has a bunch. A curious crank from Texas turned up at the end of President Arthur's term of office. He was respectable so far as appearances went. Not 30 years old, he wanted to present himself as Arthur's successor. Voices from heaven have been urging me to run for the presidency all summer long, he explained. So a week ago, I sold all my sheep, I closed my farmhouse, and here I am. The newspapers are full of the recent visit of a crank to the White House. Many such people present themselves at this shining mansion on Pennsylvania Avenue, and the annals of Washington City are full of their curious stories. In President's author's administration, there was one who was convinced that the White House belonged to him. He continually demanded that Arthur move out and let him move in. Once he walked to Washington from his home in the Pennsylvania Hills near Pittsburgh, he walked and arrived to take possession of the president's mansion with boots covered in mud. Informed by the experienced doorman that it would be inconvenient for the president to move just then, he went away, muttering that he would come back in a few days, and that meanwhile, he would take the matter up with the Attorney General of the United States. Then there was the troubled woman who came bearing a box filled with old dresses for Mrs. Cleveland. She told the guards she had heard that the president's wife had nothing fit to wear. It was the more ridiculous in that this woman was three times the size of Mrs. Cleveland, and that her own clothes were shabby and worn. <laughs> So the story goes, and it's just kind of adding to the legend of James Garfield, is that as a professor of the classics, which he was, that he could write sentences with one hand in Greek and then with the other hand in Latin at the same time on the blackboard. And that must have been a sight to see. Except... We don't really have verification of it. In fact, James Garfield's son heard so much about rumors that he could do this that he asked around and tried to find out if it was true, and no one could verify it. But what we do know is that he used both hands in writing. Yeah, so there were other uh, facts, obscure facts about presidents that I didn't get a chance to share with Jeremy. One is that 
only eight presidents have been left-handed. But the interesting thing, a good proportion of recent presidents have been left-handed. This in, so uh, including Biden, only eight, Barack Obama, Herbert Hoover, Harry Truman, Gerald Ford, Bill Clinton, and George H.W. Bush, all left-handed. Reagan and James Garfield wrote with both hands. What's the reason for this? Well, we could make all types of uh, talk about, you know, right hand or left hand or neuroscience or things like this, but some of it is the fact that in the past, those um, school students who were left-handed were actually forced by the school teachers to write with their right. This is the case with Ronald Reagan. He's left-handed, but he's ambidextrous because he was forced to write with his right hand in school. And in a lot of cases, there may be more left-handed presidents than we are aware of, but it was kind of um, trained out of them, if you will, by the school system. Speaking of schools, another obscure fact about presidents, a Millard Fillmore married his teacher, Abigail Powers. Uh, now, Fillmore was 19, and Abigail Powers Fillmore was 21, so it wasn't a big gap. She kept on teaching, even after their marriage, and Millard Fillmore at the time wasn't earning enough as a local lawyer. Sadly... Abigail Powers Fillmore was sick in the White House and actually dies the day of Franklin Pierce's inauguration. So right as the Fillmores are watching Pierce be sworn in, it's a cold day, and uh, Abigail Powers Fillmore is lost. Franklin Pierce, as an ex-president, was greeted by a mob at his house. This is after Abraham Lincoln was shot. And Pierce was never seen as a great supporter of the Civil War. I mean, he mouthed support for it, but there were letters discovered in Jefferson Davis's captured home from Franklin Pierce saying he'd never support this vile war. That didn't go over well in the Union. And in Concord, New Hampshire, when Lincoln was assassinated, there were crowds that were going around, kind of like a, a social mob, if you will, both sharing grief uh, about what had happened but also making sure that people had their flags up to honor Lincoln's life and to honor the Union. They asked of Franklin Pierce where his flag was. He came out and says, It is not necessary for me to show my devotion to the Republic, to the Stars and Stripes. He cited that his father had served in the Revolution, that he had served or his grandfather had served in the revolution. He had served in the Mexican War, and then he had served as president. Um, whether or not the crowd was convinced or not, they did give three cheers and leave. Another obscure fact, uh, if I needed it, would have been that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson went together when they were early ambassadors of the United States and in Great Britain to see Shakespeare's grave. They chopped a piece of Shakespeare's chair and took it as a souvenir. And uh, presumably they were allowed to do this. <laughs> this was a time when they were friends. 
We talked a bit about ex-presidents on that cast, and I was really glad to have Jeremy Anderberg on there. There was one story from George McClellan's book that could have brought up. I wasn't sure if we were going to do a top 10, a top 5. Top 8 is actually kind of cool. Everybody does top 10, so I like top 8. Top 8 with one bonus one, which really made it a top nine obscure stories about presidents. So I had a bunch of them. And one was that um, we're talking about ex-presidents, how Woodrow Wilson had angered Grover Cleveland. Um, And yes, the two did know each other because Grover Cleveland as an ex-president was on the board of directors of Princeton, the board of trustees of Princeton College, while Woodrow Wilson was the president. Woodrow Wilson had this very complicated reform plan that a lot of people at Princeton didn't like. And when you say people at Princeton didn't like, that means alumni who are still very involved in the school and that he would change the way, uh, manner of instruction and how people were housed and um, was not a popular program, but it's what Woodrow Wilson wanted. And Cleveland was against it. Cleveland was traveling and he asked whether Wilson was going to bring it up. And Woodrow Wilson said, no, it's not going to come up in the next meeting. Then, knowing he wouldn't have Grover Cleveland's vote, he brought it up in the meeting and had enough votes to pass. And Grover Cleveland never forgave him for that. I mean, he didn't have too many years left in his life. Grover Cleveland is an ex-president for Theodore Roosevelt. And, um, you know, he and Roosevelt do get along. In When Roosevelt was in the New York legislature, Grover Cleveland was governor, and the two worked together on New York State's reform bill. Grover Cleveland, as governor, could not get the votes of all the Democrats. And so Theodore Roosevelt, who was at a very young age leading the Republicans in the New York State Assembly, was able to deliver the votes on civil service reform for Grover Cleveland. So the two had worked together, and um, he would honor him and put him on a few committees when Theodore Roosevelt became president. He dies in June of 1908 at his funeral in Princeton, New Jersey, is where he's buried. President Roosevelt, Governor Fort of New Jersey, Hughes of New York, Hoke Smith of Georgia, former members of President Cleveland's cabinet are there. The burial of the ex-president Grover Cleveland's funeral marked by simplicity and absence of pomp. Notable gathering. Along the streets from the house to the cemetery, National Guardsmen mounted and on foot policed the way. As President Roosevelt passed through the gate leading from the Westland grounds, the militiamen presented arms and the president doffed his hat in recognition. pallbearers, six on either side of the hearse, marched with a procession as it wended its way slowly down Bayard Lane to Nassau Street and on along the main thoroughfare of the town. Business had been suspended during the afternoon and curtains were drawn in many of the Princeton houses. The silent crowd stood with bared heads as the procession passed along into Van Venter Avenue, 
and the old bell in the tower of old Nassau had tolled mournfully. Once in a while, there's a political rivalry that's so strong that you can't mention one person without the other. And so it is with Benjamin Disraeli and William Gladstone. During a time that Great Britain was deciding a number of fundamental policies, and through a period that America was dealing with slavery and its own civil war in Great Britain, you could say these two men, Disraeli and Gladstone, dominated the political scene from the 1830s to the 1880s as they rose up in the ranks of government often by defeating each other. For 20 years, they traded stints at the prime minister's job. They were rivals. They disliked each other greatly. And yet, in British history, they are considered among the greatest prime ministers. For Benjamin Disraeli, he referred to his rival William Gladstone as that unprincipled maniac Gladstone, extraordinary mixture of envy vindictiveness, hypocrisy, and superstition. Gladstone said of his old enemy, the Tory party had principles by which it would and did stand for bad and good. All of this dizzy destroyed. Here an actor plays Disraeli giving one of his famous speeches. For Gladstone, luckily he lived long enough that we have a recording of him on a photograph. The two couldn't be more different. Gladstone came from money. He came from status, both in society and in the Anglican religion. He was a man of high morality, driven by religious beliefs. If not a politician, he would have become a priest. He resigns from a ministerial office in Parliament and even from the prime minister job over principled issues that not everyone even understood. He was a fine orator in the classic tradition. Disraeli was more of the political schemer, plotting his way up, as he called it, the greasy pole of politics, a phrase that would have been distasteful for Gladstone. Disraeli runs four times for Parliament before he gets in. As Prime Minister, he courts Queen Victoria at a time 
when the British democracy aches to move on from royalty and where the monarch has only symbolic power, he champions her for a title of empress, the empress of India that she wanted. Gladstone refuses to do that and opposes that move and never gets along well with Queen Victoria. Victoria once complained, Gladstone always addresses me as if I were a public meeting. From the moment the two met at a dinner meeting in the 1830s, they detest each other. Disraeli finds Gladstone loud and drunk and tells a friend that it was a horrible dinner. The best company was the stuffed swan. Gladstone finds Disraeli dull and dressed shabbily. When Gladstone's picked for a ministerial position over Disraeli, he gets to the front bench first. The wounds smart even more. But Disraeli would eventually perform a kind of masterstroke, recreating the Conservative Party in Great Britain by breaking it up. See, Gladstone and the current Prime Minister, Robert Peel, are in a faction that goes along with repealing the Corn Laws. And these are essentially protection laws, ensuring the price of British grain. With an Irish famine and the need for trade to lower prices to people, the government decides to repeal the Corn Laws. Disraeli takes a stand against it. He sees his opportunity. He uses that to break up the Conservative Party. And once it's broken up, there's no other leader left than himself to pick up the pieces. Then he uses Gladstone. Gladstone has decided in a grudging way to introduce as a minister, not just prime minister, a tepid democracy bill. There are people protesting in England as we go into the 1840s, 50s, and 60s for democracy, for the ability to vote in parliamentary elections. They cannot right now unless they own property and meet certain income requirements. Gladstone's bill seeks to lower slightly the household requirement and income requirements for voting to allow more working class people to vote, but not too many. In fact, most will still be excluded. Really just enough to seem like it's reform without being reform. Disraeli, as a conservative opposition leader, opposes this measure and gets those conservative liberals in Gladstone's party to oppose the measure as well. When the policy fails, the government's broken up, there's an election, Disraeli wins. He's a leading figure in a new government. And then eventually, when the prime minister is too sick to continue, the ambitious Disraeli becomes prime minister, 1868. After defeating Gladstone's bill, Disraeli introduces his own bill that has no property or income requirement whatsoever and allows everyone to vote, every man to vote, I should say. It passes overwhelmingly, and it scandalizes Gladstone because he now has to oppose this measure, and it exposes him as not being a friend of the working person and not being sincere about reform. It's a game of chicken, really. And the conservative party that Disraeli's leading doesn't like it. This is not normally the way they're a country party. This is not the normal, you know, democracy is not normally what they're standing up for. The votes of working men is not normally what they're standing up for, but Disraeli is very charismatic and convinces them we're going to win the next election. They're going to be so grateful. But it doesn't actually work that way. Gladstone, though scandalized by this, his party wins in the 1868 general election because of all these new votes. Here's how Gladstone's biographer describes it. The two leaders were now face-to-face. Their style of debate was as different as their personalities. 
Gladstone torrential, eloquent, evangelical, vehement, and preachy. Disraeli urbane, witty, and worldly, with a streak of romance as well as cynicism. Entry into the army and civil service was reformed. The judicial system was overhauled. Electoral procedure was rationalized, and the secret ballot was introduced during Gladstone's term. But in 1874, the electorate tires of the liberal government, and Disraeli wins a victory. Now, on a lot of domestic issues, the two overlap. Disraeli reforms some things in British government. Gladstone reforms some things in British government. On foreign policy, there's a big difference. Disraeli was a strong supporter of the empire and of English nationalism. Gladstone was altogether more internationally minded. He wanted an ethical foreign policy. A big issue develops. Disraeli regards Turkey as a necessary ally and a bulwark against the threat of Russia, especially to the trade route with India. But the Turkish government is behaving terribly towards the minority of Christian Bulgarians in their territory. Gladstone begins an anti-Turkish crusade while Disraeli wants a pro-Turkey policy. It is at the Congress of Berlin in 1878 where the Russian and Turkish war is settled and Bismarck and Disraeli get credit for sitting down and organizing the peace. It's a big foreign policy victory. The Queen is happy. The electorate, though, is just mild about it. And in 1880, Gladstone becomes prime minister once again. Disraeli's health is terrible. He has gout, he has asthma, he has bronchitis, and he'll die in 1881. And now, Gladstone's prime minister, there's big public outpouring for Disraeli. Yet, Gladstone knows that if he appears at the funeral or if he makes some kind of public, great public statement, there's going to be an outcry because how hypocritical. Everyone knows he was this great rival for years and years and years. Eventually, though, in Parliament, after all the public memorials, Gladstone makes a speech. Separated from Disraeli by longer and larger differences than perhaps ever separated any two people brought into constant contact in the transaction of public business. I still praise his intellectual powers, his long-sighted persistency of purpose, a remarkable power of self-government, who was always ready to risk popularity and influence, and his great parliamentary courage, of which I have never seen surpassed. It's a great speech and one of Gladstone's recognized greatest speeches is his eulogy to his great rival. Yet, privately, he still, after Disraeli's death, expresses bitterness that Disraeli got the last laugh. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez. 
longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Michelle Minton writes, Bruce, I've generally enjoyed your podcast over the last year, and I'd love to hear from you uh, doing a show covering the history and regulatory authority of federal executive departments in relation to two hot topics today, the FDA and its ban on alcoholic energy drinks, and the TSA with its recent enhanced uh, pat-down and scanner issues. Good question, Michelle. Thank you for listening. Uh, It starts, in a way, with a debate that goes back to the early days of Republic and a debate that was solved by the first president. Did departments work for Congress or the president? Who's actually in control of administration? Congress funded them, but the president was allowed to ask any question, inquire of any federal department or officer, anything you wanted. That's in the Constitution. So if Congress is funding these departments... And when the federal government started, incidentally, it was essentially George Washington and 500 employees of the Treasury, most of which were going to go out there and collect taxes, porting under uh, Alexander Hamilton, the Treasury Secretary, and about 22 employees of everything else. So there wasn't a large federal government, but there was a federal government there. So who was in charge? Did Congress run Alexander Hamilton, the Treasury Secretary, because they provided his budget, or did the president? It was settled in a sense by Washington, and he had the authority to do it. He just simply started commanding these departments. Sure, they had to present what they were doing to Congress. Sure, they had to get funding from Congress. But day-to-day running, that was Washington's job, and he met routinely with his cabinet, which at the time was Alexander Hamilton, Henry Knox, the Secretary of War, Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of State, and eventually Edmund Rand of the Attorney General. They worked for him. The executive departments, in effect, are an extension of the executive. So, just as the Treasury Department and all of those tax collectors going out throughout the country collecting excise taxes were representatives of Washington, the FDA, and the Transportation Security Administration today are among our representatives of President Obama, an extension of the president. We decided that there would be one president, single executive, and these are extensions of him. It all started in 1790. To understand the Food and Drug Administration, I think it comes out of two things. One is a long history of what had been American healthcare, and that is really patent medicine. And the second is the progressive movement at the turn of the century. So medicine in America, really even going 
from colonial days going back to the turn of the century is principally medicine, is principally drugs, uh, pharmaceuticals. And there was there was a great amount of money to be made marketing these patent medicines. The funny thing about them is most of them weren't patented. Only a few of them actually had patents. But people would go and promote their brands. There were sometimes whole newspapers that would start up, almanacs that would start up financed by the advertisements for patent medicine. Sometimes the companies that owned the patent medicine would be the ones that were funding the newspaper as well, just kind of a giveaway to help them sell more medicine where the real profit was being made. So it was a big business, everything from colored water to baking soda to actual snake oil. That's where the term snake oil merchants came from. It was a very popular treatment for a while there. Was sold and it was a big business. In terms of the food supply, concern about the food supply reached a high when Upton Sinclair's The Jungle was published about the meatpacking plants in Chicago. And some of the horror stories on how long the, the meat was left, you know, rotting and then still sold and packaged and sold and colored or what have you. The conditions in some of these meatpacking plants. And uh, one of the stories of uh, the publication of this book is that the publisher actually sent a lawyer out to the meatpacking plants in Chicago to verify if anything that Upton Sinclair said was true. They didn't want to get sued for slander or the like. And when the lawyer from the publisher came back, he said actually that uh, Sinclair had lowballed the situation. It was actually much worse than even his book had presented. So Sinclair wasn't the only muckraking journalist out there, but he was one of uh, many of journalists that were starting to talk about the, the food supply and that we had to do better in controlling it. They looked to the federal government. This is a time when there were a lot of progressives in the federal government. In the White House was Theodore Roosevelt, who was sympathetic to this. And in 1906, the Congress passed the Food and Drug Act, which um, in fact created the FDA. So right back there, all the way in 1906, is where you get the answer to your question about the history of a federal government agency that can tell us not to have alcohol and caffeine drinks. Now, I don't in terms of them regulating drugs, though, initially when the FDA tried to get involved in, in regulating some of the patent medicines or pharmaceuticals that were out there, courts rejected that they had the authority to do so. Even in 1912, the Congress tried to extend the authority of the FDA so that they could actually review pharmaceuticals. Courts were still siding with the uh, pharmaceutical companies. It was in 1938 when a drug company poisoned 100 people with a drug called diethanol glycine, or DEG. This turned out to be poisonous. What happened? Because even in the days before the FDA, it wasn't like companies just made whatever they wanted. They obviously were, even in a free market system, they were concerned about killing people because they, they uh, wouldn't have any customers uh, you know, after that. So generally, uh, you would have chemists in the company, and also you would conduct animal testing, uh, even without the FDA pushing you to do it. Well, this manufacturer skipped the animal testing. They did have a chemist on staff, and the chemist simply didn't know that DEG was poisonous. So after that, and there was tremendous outrage over this, and all they were able to ever do to the company was give them a minor fine, never really a fine for anything they, they, they did wrong. The FDA was 
given uh, new powers by the New Deal Congress and given the authority to review drugs before they were made. And now you have the uh, FDA intensely involved in the, in the making of drugs. Going into the 80s and 90s, at the behest partially of drug companies, of course, but also AIDS activists and cancer activists who were seeing new drugs that were taking a long time to get out into market. Uh, particularly true of AIDS, where people weren't living long enough. And the AZT, for instance, uh, was um, took a long time to get to market. Because of that, you saw a fast-track process for certain drugs. Therefore, it's an orphan drug. So, um, you know, it's not coming from a previous treatment. It's a new drug for something that there's no cure for. The FDA gets those out a little bit quicker. The federal government is no longer 522 people. It's a vast organization, and things like the TSA, now under the Department of Homeland Security, previously a very small agency, and you know, prior to 9-11, you have vast federal government, it all reports to the president, but it's funded or not funded by Congress. You know, so if the question is, why does the federal government have the right to tell me I can't drink like a, you know, a caffeinated alcoholic beverage? Or the federal government, you know, forcing me to go through a pat-down scanner. Complexity of modern life. You had here a drug manufacturer that's selling things now, not just in one area where state could regulate them, but selling things all over the country. Federal law supersedes. And federal law, uh, the federal government has regulatory rights where there's interstate commerce. Texas. Uh, Texas joined the Union in 1845. President John Tyler saw to it after he saw that James Polk was elected on the issue of Texas, among other things. He pushed it through. And why? Because the Redcoats were coming. Yes, that was the fear. As Andrew Jackson said, if we don't Occupy Texas, the British will come in. We can't have a Kennedy on our south. We already have one on our north, the former president wrote to friends in 1845. The annexation agreement allowed Texas to split into five states if it chose to. The current governor, Rick Perry, in a tough race with Senator K. Bailey Hutchinson uh, for his seat as governor, has gone out there and argued that Texas can secede from the Union. Now, the question is, can it do so? That's what Gerard Mendel uh, asks. I've been a big fan of the podcast for a while now. I have a question. When the Republic of Texas was annexed, the document supposedly, supposedly provided that it could be split into five states. Does that mean Texas can divide itself without an additional act of Congress? So he's not really asking if Texas can secede, but he's asking about the five states. But let me deal with the secession since the governor of Texas brought this up. The simple answer is no, the state of Texas cannot secede from the Union anytime it wants. We should keep in mind that Texas did secede from the Union once in 1861, and one president from Illinois used federal troops to put it back, along with its Confederate neighbors, into the Union. And if Texas did that today, the second president from Illinois, I imagine, would use his army to force it back into the Union. Or he'd just try to charm them back or something 
And there is really no way to unstate a state. We talked about this in the statehood uh, podcast. Uh, once you're a state, there's no provision to unstate. There is a provision to split up states, as long as the originating state agrees. So, looking at the annexation treaty, it looks like Texas is allowed to split up into five states. But the way I view that, so can California, so can Pennsylvania. The trouble you run into just trying to use the annexation document is not only is it very old, and I just think that courts would have a problem applying those rules to today, but you also have the problem of the four additional states. Assuming if you create five states, one of them is going to remain Texas. What about these new four states? South Texas, West Texas, East Texas, whatever you want to call them. Southern Oklahoma, I don't know what the, what the states would become. They would need, in my view, approval by the Congress to become states in their own right. Otherwise, they would, those four would never become states. So I think you need an act of Congress for the whole thing to happen. I don't think it will happen, but and just like I don't think seceding from the Union will happen, but it is a good political issue, I suppose. Now, what is the Ninth Amendment? A quick uh, reminder that the Ninth Amendment merely says, The enumeration of rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. There was some concern that if you attached a Bill of Rights to the Constitution, that by saying the government couldn't do this, government couldn't do that, and enumerating certain of the rights that the people have, that would limit rights. So they wanted to make sure, and and if you didn't get it right, then in 1789, you'd have to go to an amendment to get any more rights identified for people. And it would actually enlarge the powers of the federal government in a sense. In the VA ratification convention, it came up. The Pennsylvania ratification convention, it came up. A Pennsylvania ratification delegate said, we don't even know how many rights we have. From the Virginia Ratification Convention, the text gives you an idea of what they were looking for. The text they suggested was that those clauses which declare that Congress shall not uh, execute certain powers be interpreted in no manner whatsoever to extend the powers of Congress. It is the legal consensus. Uh, if you look at a very liberal Supreme Court Justice, William Douglas, from back in the 60s, says that the Ninth does not create federally enforceable rights. Uh, if you look at Lawrence Tribe, a scholar more associated with left than right, says uh, it's not a source of rights, the Ninth. It's just a way to interpret the Constitution. Robert Bork, during his confirmation hearing, called it an ink blot. And then there is the pattern that most rights that we have in the Bill of Rights are what might be called action rights. You can do something, and the government cannot stop you from doing if you have that right. You have a right to free speech. The government cannot stop you from speaking. There are circumstances where they can, but it's, you know, it's a pretty high test, high bar. So asserting, um, as we had suggested in the podcast, that a you have a right, the government, to provide you health care 
might be challenging when one looks at the rest of the rights in the Constitution, their action rights, and none of them are uh, demands that government do something for you. Considering that, I think there's only one way that one could assert a right to health care from the Ninth, and keep in mind that the Ninth does, it sets up the option of a right without an amendment, right? If, if an amendment was required to assert all these rights that might be referenced in the Ninth, you wouldn't need the Ninth. You just pass the amendment. They wanted to say that there were rights we had, didn't need an amendment. What you'd have to do is argue that the government has, by its actions, made health care expensive and out of reach. Try buying an individual, non-employer-based plan. It's expensive. Why? Partially because of steps the government has taken. First of all, the government has taken huge swaths of people out of the market. Seniors, children, the poor. Not that they'd be in the market, but to some extent they would. Not only that, they pay for certain treatments, do not reimburse others. They make decisions out of which products will survive and which won't. They also say who can operate on you. They license doctors. It's a libertarian argument for what might be considered a liberal position. The provision of health care. You're arguing I have a right to some type of health care because the government has gotten into it. If they stayed out of it, if the government didn't do anything tinkering with health care and it was all free market based, I'm not sure I'd have an argument under the ninth. But since they're in, they're interfering and they're making my ability to get health care more difficult, more expensive. My right to life is being abrogated by the government's actions. And so, though it's not referenced as a right in the Constitution, the government has to do something for it. Will it happen? Probably not. <laughs> has it happened? No, I'm not aware of any argument made in, in a court that I could be proven wrong. Uh, but it's probably the only way to do health care using the knife. More about the Ninth. Jeremiah writes, Has the Ninth been used to justify same-sex marriages? Is there any precedent for this that you are aware of? Not that I know of directly, but it, essentially, I'm sure there'll be cases where this the Ninth is used. Uh, essentially, if we shift from a right to health care to I have a right to marry my partner, even if they are same-sex, you are on, I think, a better plane in using the Ninth than for the the argument that the government has to provide me health care. Marrying someone is an action, and the government stopping you from doing it is the type of thing that constitutional rights protect. The Ninth has been used to assert a right to privacy in Griswold versus Connecticut, in Doe versus Bolton, which was done the same day as Roe v. Wade. In the case of Griswold, it was partially used to assert a right to marital privacy. Only one justice uh, mentioned the knife. But the Griswold precedent is a little different because there are other amendments that deal with privacy. The idea of quartering soldiers, the idea of you don't have to be forced to testify against yourself. You know, even to some extent, the Second Amendment. I mean, there's a keep and bear arms. I mean, there's a privacy element to many of these rights. So the knife was used in, in those cases. A right to parenting was 
asserted by justices as different on the spectrum or as far apart on the spectrum as Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Clarence Thomas in a case called Troxel versus Granville, which asserted the right of, this was in 2000, asserted the right of parents to raise children. Interestingly enough, Justice Scalia and John Paul Stevens actually were in dissent in this particular case. Now, Thomas did not argue using the Ninth, but he did assert that the Constitution grants a right to parenting. Scalia disagreed. The only way to assert that the Constitution gives you a right that is not written in the document is to use the Ninth, at least as an interpretive tool, whether he mentioned it or not. A decision in the 30s, uh, U.S. Public Workers versus Mitchell, asserted that workers uh, have a right to political activity. Not exactly the same as speech. It can take a lot more forms than speech. Political activity was a right. Obviously, it's related, again, anchored to that mimics the First Amendment. So, now, in the case, they said it wasn't uh, like any right uh, subject to some testing versus other people's rights. Now, in this case, federal workers... If they took the federal job, they could not engage in political activity. That's what the Hatch Act says. So that was ruled constitutional. They took the job. They're agreeing to some extent to waive their right. But it did assert that we have a right to political activity. And again, that's not mentioned in the Constitution. So you want to marry someone, the state won't let you. I think that the Ninth could be very useful in the pursuit of an action right, such as the right to marry. That's all for today, and uh, the website's myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. I want to thank you for listening.